Well, depression's greatest ally is self-pity. As a professional pity party thrower, pity party thrower, <laughs> off to a great start, I can attest to the sin and danger of self-pity. I'm a professional at it. I know what it's like to wallow in my own troubles and complain on and on and on about the situations I find myself in. And I think it's helpful just to define what self-pity is. And self-pity is the excessive, self-absorbed unhappiness about one's own trouble or troubles. Self-pity is so dangerous because we can be justified, we can feel justified in our circumstances to wallow in our griefs and our troubles. After all, who has it as tough as we do? Who lives in the situation that we do? That no one has to deal with a spouse like mine. She doesn't have to try so hard to be liked by others. He has no idea how hard I have it every single day. No one has it as hard as me. Have you ever thought that to yourself? I have many times. The reason self-pity is a sin is not because we don't have troubles. We certainly do have troubles but rather because it displays a complete lack of gratitude and trust in God. Here today in the book of Genesis, we are going to discover just how easy self-pity can come to us and how foolish it makes us look to the reader and to God. As we read this passage, we have information that characters in this story do not have. And just the same way, God has access to information about our lives that we as well do not have. He knows the truth all along. So I've got three points I want to share with you guys. My first point as we get into it is the docile family. My second point is the reunited family. And my third point is the suspicious family. So let's get into it. Genesis 42, going to start from verse 1. Please read along with me. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came. For the famine was in the land of Canaan. We're going to stop there. It's uh, very interesting in the book of Genesis, we've seen three patriarchs. You guys remember them, Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. And each three of those patriarchs have had to face a famine, a famine in the land of Canaan. And they've had to travel somewhere else in order to retrieve food from a foreign country. We remember Abraham first went down to Egypt, you remember that? Isaac, he went over to Philistia with the king Abimelech, and Jacob is now sending his sons down to Egypt to find food. And each patriarch faced this famine really as a test of their faith. Because if God promised you a promised land, a good land, a land where your uh, descendants will multiply as the stars in the heaven, you would expect that land to facilitate that, right? You would expect that land to be bountiful. You expect it to be flourishing and abundant. And yet they find themselves coming to a land of drought and famine and hardship. And so the test then comes, do you trust that God will provide for you? Do you trust that God will give you the things that you need to make this a reality? And so as a lesson that they needed to learn that the safest and most secure place was in the will of God. 
There was no other place that was safer, despite their circumstances. And it's a lesson that takes a lifetime to learn. Because you would think now that Jacob's an old dude, he's had a lot of things happen in his life, he's seen God do amazing things, that he would learn this lesson, that he would know this lesson. And we're going to find out that really, he's got a long way to go. And if we're honest, in many ways, we too have a long way to go. And these hardships, whatever form they take, God uses them to wean us off this world and to long for a better world, a better land. And all of Jacob's sons, they're grown up and they have their own families now. We see that last time Judah, he went off to try to start his own tribe somewhere else. It didn't really work out, did it? He's now back with his family. He's come back kind of with his tail between his legs and all of the sons actually stick around within the family union. They don't go off and start their own tribes. Jacob remains kind of a chieftain, the leader of this tribe, and he kind of makes the calls. And he notices that the food reserves begin to be depleted, the water is running out, and his sons haven't really got off their butts to do anything. They're just sitting around looking at each other, debating, deliberating, hey, fellas, this isn't looking good. Our crops aren't growing this season. The grass is all dying out. Our sheep aren't really uh, having much fodder to feed on getting pretty bad. What are we going to do, fellas? And then they start brainstorming, talking, uh, but they don't really get up to anything. They don't really do anything. They just sit there talking, not coming to any concrete action. And Jacob rebukes them. He says, guys, why do you look at one another? Why are you looking around? Get off your butt and do something. They're talking without acting. I mean, I'm not sure about you, but I wince a bit at this because that's like one of my specialties is talking about stuff, but not actually doing anything. More often than not, we're waiting for someone else to come and take the lead, someone else, someone with more experience to interject and call us out. Jacob is that man. He intervenes and he commends them, you guys need to go to Egypt because I know I've heard along the grapevine, messages have come up and we see that there is still grain in Egypt, so get down there. And as the master of the house, Jacob has this responsibility, not just to pray for his daily bread, but to make sure that his family gets it, to take great care and diligence. And he gives his sons a good booting in the behind to get them where they need to be. And we ought to take a strong lesson from this too. It's better to act assertively than to speak about an issue and never solve it. Proverbs 14, 23. In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Let us be a people that don't just chat and talk about things, but actually get up and do it. And he's learnt a valuable lesson from the incident with Joseph. These journeys are dangerous. Last time he sent one of his sons off, he got eaten by an animal. Well, at least that's what he thinks happened. And so he holds back his beloved son, Benjamin. Jacob hasn't really learned his lesson about favourites. He's still got a favourite. It's now Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother, born to his beloved wife, Rachel. He's the new de facto Joseph, and Jacob, Jacob wasn't going to risk him for a second. And so off these brothers go to Egypt, not realizing that in Egypt they were going to have a reunion that would be talked about for a very, very long time. So let's get into it. The reunited family, my second point, verse 6, if you have your Bible. Let's keep reading. This is a big chunk of scripture. So, Verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. 
But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we are your servants. We, your servants, are 12 brothers and sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you were spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to him, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your household. And bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is, in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Well, we've seen seven years of plenty, if you remember. Last seven years, Joseph, he's never really made it back to Canaan. Isn't that interesting? He's had seven years as governor of the land of Egypt, and he's never made it back. He hasn't as much as sent a messenger back to his family to let them know, hey guys, I'm okay. Everything's good. If the famine comes, come down here, I will take care of you. He doesn't even do that. And a large part was that he was kept very, very busy. He couldn't afford to go to Egypt for a couple, uh, go back to Canaan for, for a couple of weeks. But he also knows that the last time he saw his brothers, they came very close to killing him. Would it be any different when he saw them next? How interesting is it that God often brings broken families back together for a reunion like this? Joseph was utterly rec- unrecognizable to him. When they last saw him, he was this, you know, pubescent, pimply-faced teenage boy. Now he's a grown man, dressed as an Egyptian. 
using an interpreter, speaking in the Egyptian language. As Joseph was going about his business, this group of Hebrews with their uh, servants bowed down before him. They paid homage to him. And this was due to the fact that he was the governor, a man of stature. And in that moment, Joseph's heart must have skipped a beat. Because there he is, confronted once again with the ten brothers who had captured him and sold him into slavery. Immediately, it says his dream sprang to mind. There are his brother's empty sheaves bowing down before his sheaf raised up in front of them. And God had once again proved himself completely faithful to the promise. What was Joseph going to do now? He had a lot of options. He could immediately reveal himself and say, Brothers, it's you. He could have embraced them and said, I can't believe I'm seeing you guys again. This is amazing. But were they the same monsters he saw before? Were they the same villainous murderers who wanted his blood? Maybe he could get revenge on them. They're at his mercy now. He could capture them all under some trumped-up charge and put them all to death for, in revenge for what they did to him. He could have done that too. He has a third option. He wants to find out who his brothers are now. And so he decides to test them. Are you guys really the same brothers who treated me so poorly back in the day? And Joseph, in that moment, he goes with the last option. He puts them under close watch. He decides to see what kind of men they are. He speaks harshly with them and begins to make accusations that they are spies looking to see the nakedness of the land. You know, a foreign country who's run out of food, perfect opportunity to see if you can find a way to invade Egypt and take that food for yourself. It was a, it was a serious thing. And so he wants to see how they re would react. He demands information from them, which is interesting because all the information he wants from them is about the family. He wants to know how the family is going. He wants to know what's happened. How's his father? What's going on? And to his surprise, they actually tell Joseph the truth. Joseph, in that moment, may have expected them to lie to him and to come up with something because they have no idea who he is, but they're actually telling the truth. And so first kind of test is passed. They actually are truthful men. They say there are 12 brothers. One is dead and the other, Benjamin, is still at home with his father. And Joseph wants to see Benjamin. And so he orders, hey, guys, you need to bring Benjamin here because I want to see my brother again. And that way you can prove that you are not spies. And so they're placed in jail for three days and Simeon is forced to stay back as a prisoner, as a hostage, to ensure that they're honest enough to fulfill their oath. Why did he do this? Why arrest one of his brothers and hold one of his brothers hostage until they bring Benjamin back to, uh, to him so that he can uh, see his brother again. Well, he does this because he has to know if his brothers were the same men. Because their option right now is they could very well just leave Simeon there. Simeon, sorry, mate, we're going to cut our losses. It's really unfortunate what happened to you, but it's dangerous here. Bad stuff can happen. We might end up getting killed if we come back. Simeon, we're leaving you. Sorry, it's a price we have to pay. I mean, after all, didn't they leave Joseph in the pit? Didn't they uh, sell him into slavery? Are they the same selfish, self-seeking men from his childhood? Or had they changed? Well, he's going to find out. Would they come back for Simeon? Or would they leave him? But then Joseph gets the first sign that they had indeed changed. They don't know that he can speak Hebrew. 
they think that he's an Egyptian, right? And they're speaking through an interpreter. So they gather together and they start speaking and he can hear what they're saying. And to Joseph's bewilderment, they're repenting. They're in a terrible predicament and they believe that it is God's retribution to them to how they had treated their younger brother Joseph. I mean, time doesn't alleviate guilt. I remember horrible things I did in primary school that for some reason I still feel to this day horribly guilty for. And you might be thinking, dude, it was 20 years ago. Well, it's been 20 long years since they saw Joseph carted off to Egypt and they're still as ashamed and guilty as the day it happened. It's like yesterday that they can still hear their brothers pleading and begging with them, don't do this. They saw the distress of his soul, it says. Strong language in the Hebrew. They saw how horrible what they were doing to their brother was. And they still did it. Reuben is angrier with them. You can understandably, because he wanted to free Joseph. He tried to stop them from doing it all. And now he feels like, I'm going down with you guys because of what's happened. You guys are bringing me down with your foolish actions. And Joseph overhears all this. And he was so overwhelmed by the change he saw in his brothers that he turned aside and he wept. He went into a back room because he believed them the arrogant, boastful and cruel brothers that he saw and now he could hear the remorse from their actions. But was Joseph going to drop the charade now? Was this the moment? They're changed. They repented. There's distress. You can see that they're upset with what they've done. Do I drop my act now? Do I reveal myself? But he doesn't. Because there was one important thing. The remorse was directed at themselves. Have you ever seen someone who's done something pretty horrible, but they don't really care about it until consequences come down upon them, until all of a sudden they have to face the consequences of their actions, and then they're repentant. Then they all of a sudden care about what they've done. Well, it's hard to know here whether they are kind of false repenting because they're facing consequences for their actions, or whether it's legit. And so Joseph, I guess decides that he's going to continue to test them further. He's going to stay with his first test. He's not going to abandon it yet. Will they come back for Simeon? Will they indeed bring Benjamin down? And so he binds Simeon before their eyes so they know that he's serious about it and sends them on their way. And as they're leaving, we see Joseph's intentions because he secretly puts all their money back. He doesn't want their money. He wants to provide for his family. He cares about his family. So he puts all their money back in their pouches. But the problem with this is when the brothers see this, they're not thinking, oh, wow, the Egyptians are great guys. I can't believe they put our money back. We got this for free. No, they don't think that at all. All of a sudden they're thinking, the Egyptians are trying to start a fight with us. You know, because if we get caught with our money, they're going to say we stole all this grain. You know what's going to happen? We're going to get put to death. So now they have an extra fear. Not only are they leaving their brother Simeon, but they know that they could return as thieves. Well known to the Egyptians. You guys never paid us. Now he's kind of uh, ramping up the, uh, the, the statues on this. So we, we see uh, this huge ramification for them. The Hebrews say that, uh, the Hebrew in this says that their hearts failed them. That is strong language. They are pushed to their limits. And that's what Joseph wants to do. He wants to push the brothers to their limit to to see uh, what comes out of them, to see whether they are the men that they say they are. Because they said, we are honest men. 
And I wonder if Joseph scoffed at that when they said it. Honest men, eh? Not the kind of men that would sell your brothers into slavery? Well, they're terrified now. This unfortunate event could spell the end of the family. The end of their very lives. And they end by saying, what is this that God has done to us? They are convinced that God is acting against them. They are convinced that he is bringing down the swift hand of justice upon them for their wickedness. They were suspicious of God. And they were thinking that he was going to catch them in a snare and that snare would destroy them. And we too, just like these brothers, can be quick to assume that God has indeed set himself up against us. That he has bad intentions towards us and not good intentions. But we know the story. We can read it from our perspective. But from the brothers' perspective, they're in a terrible situation. We're going to keep reading my third point, the suspicious family. Verse 29 to the end of the chapter. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land." As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Well, the the brothers kind of return defeated, miserable. And then the auntie gets upped, because as they get back there... All the money is still in the sacks. This is, this is not looking good. The whole family were incredibly suspicious. They were suspicious of the Lord of the land, Joseph. They were suspicious of him. They were suspicious of the Egyptians. They were also suspicious of each other and God. It was almost like it was every man for himself as soon as they all got back. And Jacob, he seems to think that it might be that his sons actually stole the money because he's worried, like, what have you guys done? This can't be the true story. This doesn't sound real. Why has this happened? You've come back and Simeon is gone now. I've lost my son. And now you're saying that he, in order to prove you're honest man, needs Benjamin? This doesn't make any sense. Why would he want that? Why would you even tell him that? He thinks you guys have done something foolish in Egypt. I do not trust you guys. You are not telling me the full truth. And most importantly... He's suspicious of God. He thinks that this has come all against him. He thinks that God has beef with him now. Everyone thinks that God is out for their ill. 
They're distrustful, cynical, nervous about what the future holds. They think God is out to get them. Jacob, interestingly, even blames his sons for the loss of Joseph. He says, you have bereaved me of Joseph. You did this to Joseph. He seems to think, oh, I can't even trust your tale of Joseph anymore. I can't trust you guys at all. Simeon's gone, Joseph's gone, and now you want to take Benjamin from me. He holds them accountable. He thinks they are foolish and untrustworthy. He's completely given over to self-pity. Have you seen the language of Jacob here? He says, you have bereaved me of my children. All of this has come against me. All his troubles, everything, it was all against him. He's wallowing in self-pity. He says, you guys are going to make me depressed till the day I die. You are going to keep me sorrowful until I go down to Sheol, the grave. He thinks every one of his problems revolve around him. Everyone is against him. Everything bad that happens is an attack on him. He's the ultimate victim. This kind of self-pity is not only unmanly, but it is unbecoming of a chieftain like Jacob. And it is abject unbelief and unfaithfulness to a man that ought to have known better. He truly believes that until his dying day, God has only bad things planned for him. That until he dies, God only has bad planned for him. He concludes, all these things are against me. When really, if he knew what God was doing, all these things are for him. Everything that's happening right now is for the blessing of the family. But he doesn't trust God. He doesn't think it's going to end up for his good. He thinks it's all going to end up for his ill. He can't see through the circumstances he found himself in. He's grown weak in the faith. A faith that God had sustained in him for so long. And if he knew what God was up to, he'd know that all these things were working together for his good and for the good of his family. Like Jacob... We can believe that we are inflicted in many ways and that God has brought this against us. But if we know our Bibles, we know that they're really working for us the weight of glory. Reuben tries to convince Jacob to relent. Please, Dad, let Benjamin go. We have to save Simeon. We can't leave Simeon there. We have to go back for him. He says, I promise you I will keep Benjamin safe and he says it in a really weird way but we have really weird statements as well I swear by the graves of my parents I will do this we have really bizarre things that we'll say in order to say we mean this we will do everything within our power to do this and he says I'm going to kill my two sons if we don't get it the two pride and joys that he had his two sons he was saying basically this is how much I am willing to uh, protect Benjamin. I will bet my own son's lives on this. But it's kind of a silly thing, a foolish oath, because why would Jacob want his two grandkids then killed if Benjamin's killed? It doesn't really work out. Jacob completely refuses to entertain it. He actually forbids anyone from going. He says, you will not go down to Egypt. No one is going down. We're leaving Simeon. He's on his own now. I will not risk Benjamin And what's the reason Jacob gives? Why won't he do it? It's going to be too hard on him. He'll go down to the grave sorrowful if anything should go wrong. He does not trust God to care for his children. It seems that ever since Joseph died, he's struggled ever since to trust that God has good plan for him. 
that one thing that happened to him, that one intense grief, that thing that most of us don't know what it's like to lose your child. It was an intense grief. And that one grief, the one thing that he went through, really shipwrecked his faith. It didn't completely shipwreck it, but it was on life support. He was struggling. And he just couldn't trust God anymore with his kids. He doesn't trust God to look after the promise that he made. He's not going to risk Benjamin. He chose safety over trusting God. That was really what he did. He chose safety over trusting God. And the problem with choosing safety over trusting God is that safety is an illusion. It's an illusion. Jacob felt like now you've got, we've got food. We don't need to go back to Egypt. This famine's going to wrap itself up. It's only going to be a few years. We've got enough food to get us through a few years. We're good. We don't need to go back. We'll leave Simeon to his fate. He thinks he's in a position to cut his losses. Jacob is looking to the things he could see, not realizing that they were temporal and that this famine was going to last a lot longer than he realized. These things are temporal, fleeting, and passing away. But Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 4, 16, 18, listen to these, these are powerful words. So we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We have to have a right focus, a right perspective. We are not looking at the things that we can see all the circumstances that we can see, it's only momentary compared with the glory working within us. It's light. It's a light, momentary affliction. We have to be focused on the things that are not seen because the things that are seen are temporary. They're transient. They're fading away. The truth of the matter is they weren't safe in Canaan. The famine had only just begun and they're going to need to go down to Egypt a lot sooner than they expected. Corrie ten Boom says, the safest place is in the center of God's will. It's a paradox. It's a paradox that safety lies in the very place of danger. That the dangerous place that's God's will, that you know where God wants you to be and you know it's a dangerous place. You know it's a hard place. It's a place full of anxiety. It's a place full of many different issues. You don't want to be there. You think you're safer not following what God wants for you. You think that's a safer place to be, but it is not a safe place. It feels safe, but it is unsafe. They, they needed to look to God. He is unseen. The idea that Egypt held the answer to, their pro- to the solution to their problem was a terrifying idea. To go back to Egypt, knowing that they consider, probably consider you thieves now, Going back to Egypt, knowing that your brother Simeon is in jail and you're probably going to end up there too. Probably lose your head as well. We as the reader, we know, we can read the book. We know that Joseph's in Egypt. We know they're fine. We know they've got nothing to fear. Their brother is in Egypt. He's going to look after them. He's the Lord of the land. But they don't know that. God is the same. He knows our story. He knows what's in Egypt. We think he has bad plan for us in Egypt. 
but he has good plan for us, even though it looks dangerous. If Jacob trusted in God, not only would he not lose a son, Benjamin would be safe. He would actually gain a son. He would gain his son that he thought long dead. Many are fearful of coming to Jesus for the same reason. They believe that by giving their lives to Jesus, and I mean actually giving their lives to Jesus, not just some, oh yeah, I've given my life to Jesus. No, actually like, what do you want, Jesus? I want to do that. They think that by giving their lives to Jesus, they're taking a huge risk, they're venturing out into the unknown, and they will find themselves losing everything that they love, and their life is going to be miserable. It's not worth it. But Jesus says, Matthew 16, 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. At a fundamental level, when Jesus calls us to lose everything for his sake, we don't trust him enough to believe that he'll give us, in that place, a new life, a different life, a better life. Instead of obeying in simple childlike faith and trust, we mope around and we wallow in self-pity like Jacob, not realizing that God has good things planned for those who love him, not evil. There is an eternal weight of glory awaiting all those who trust in Jesus. And so what do we do? We choose safety over trusting God. Not realizing that our safety is an illusion, that our lives can easily crumble, that people can pass away, that sickness can ravage us. The things that we place our hopes and dreams in will fail to satisfy us. But if you're wise, you will look down that road to Egypt. And you will see that there could be many dangers awaiting you, many things that can harm you, but we know that it is worth it because of who we'll find there. God was calling Jacob and his sons to venture into danger, not for their ill, but for their good. If there's anything you remember from this sermon, remember that. God is calling you too to venture into danger, to take risks, knowing at the end of the journey at the end of your pilgrimage, who will you find but Jesus? Let's pray. Father, how good it is that in the gospel we have an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. That in the gospel message we get your son Jesus. That though the road may look dangerous and perilous, and our hearts may be filled with anxiety, and we may struggle to see what good you have planned for us, Lord. I pray that by faith, not by sight, we would trust in you, that we would trust that you have good planned for us in the turmoil and in the troubles. Lord, we know that our troubles are real. We know that we really do have things set against us. But in you is the safest place we can be. Father, when we look down that dangerous road, let us not be like Jacob, who doesn't realize that his joy will be found in Egypt, that he will be reunited with his long-lost son, that he will have joy inexpressible. And Father, as we look down that road, let us look and fix our eyes upon your son Jesus, knowing that he gives us access with full confidence into your throne room. And we love you, Lord. We thank you for all the amazing things you've done in our community and in our lives. 
And I pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, you would continue to do so. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.